So, in light of the fact that we are dispersing tomorrow and and going home, each one of us to our different dwellings, we thought that tonight we would um, all talk a little bit about practice in daily life, basically, leaving here. And so we're just going to share the Dharma talk. And then tomorrow we have a little bit of chunk of time and we'll have time, we might say a little bit more um, than what we'll say tonight. Each one of us maybe will talk a little bit more tomorrow. But basically we want to leave some space, some room for um, asking questions I don't know, I don't always like to say Q&A because I don't know about the A part, but the Q part, for sure. (laughs) Whoops. Okay. Um, Asking questions. And we'll also have a uh, precepts and refuges ceremony. So anyone who wants to take the refuges and the precepts in English and Pali will do that. And we'll also have a little bit of metta to end on as well. So those are our plans I wanted to to let you know. Um, I'm a little sleepy today, so I wanted to let you know I'm really well. I'm just yawning and feeling really relaxed. So if I get so relaxed that I... (laughs) Not to be concerned. (laughs) Yeah. All right. So, there's this um, word, or these two words, that are oftentimes used when people ordain moving from lay life to monastic life. And um, it's often called, oftentimes called going forth. Going forth. So, tomorrow we're going to be kind of going in the opposite direction from, in a sense, monastic life, a life of, um, of some degree of renunciation, of having let go of a lot while we're here of what's familiar. And that adjustment process to letting go of the familiar and going forth out into our everyday life. The going forth is the same thing. You know, we might think of going forth, going forth into you know, retreat life or monastic life, this life of, of renunciation. But really, it depends on how we think about this whole thing in terms of whether we can really get behind the fact that we are going forth into our everyday life as practitioners, you know, as practitioners, the Dharma within us to be expressed in our life as it is. Of course, you might go home and um, maybe different decisions are made than you thought you might make. You know, you might see something that's off that you want to shift or you want to change. Maybe you've had some insight about certain situations in your life and you're you're just raring to go. You want to apply them, those insights. You want to live a little bit differently than you have. But generally we're going to be 
going back into our life as it is, whatever way our life is, bringing the practice with us, having, I hope, I hope, I hope, the confidence and the trust to bring the practice with us and not to leave it here. Yeah. As you are well aware, and we've been using those word, these words throughout a lot of the retreat, uh, the theme of this retreat is your life is your practice, right? But we can take this more or less seriously on a retreat, hearing it a lot, your life is your practice and the simplified environment that we're in. And so eating is your practice. Um, Drinking is your practice. Uh, Walking around is your practice. um, Walking in the woods is your practice. You know, this very simple life, your sitting is your practice. Your walking meditation is your practice. Whatever it is that arises within or without is your practice. But when we go home, when we're in our usual life where all of our kind of usual props are there, usual dependencies and usual arenas of familiarity, it takes a little bit more wherewithal to really relate to one's life as one, one's practice. And yet, of course, we have to. Yeah? Whatever we don't relate to as practices, where either there will be suffering, out-and-out suffering, on whatever level that might be, or just a sense of limitation, you know, feeling confined and contracted, and yet being caught in patterns and habits that are too familiar to really want to let go of. You know? But when we truly relate to this theme and this teaching, this reality that our life is our practice, we're excited to to leave and to start applying what we now know. You know, we're a little bit excited about the richness of it all, of bringing our practice to basically, you know, um, our, our work life and our life of relationship. As Freud said, love and work. You know, that was a smart thing to to look at life in that way. And even if you're retired and you don't have conventional kinds of work anymore. Still, how do you spend your day? You know, so, so our lives of relationship and, and, um, and what we might call love in all of its different dimensions and, and, um, and work. And so bringing the practice into these really crucial arenas in our lives. The easy situations, like just living a day and nothing much happening, we really bring up a kind of dharma energy, you know, a real interest and a real affection for our life, lived as it is. We bring it up so we can apply the practice to the mundane, which some of our days certainly are, perhaps. But then when we hit difficult situations in our lives, that's when we really go to town with this whole thing, you know, because that's when our conditioning is truly challenged. Our conditioning is 
actually challenged when we find ourselves in provocative or difficult situations in our lives. And because our conditioning is challenged, that's, those are the times when a greater degree of freedom is also possible, can also be found because of the challenging of our conditioning. So the orientation of a yogi, of a yogini, of a practitioner, you know, the mind of a, of a practitioner, we relate to life in really different ways. Instead of through the lens of, of good and bad and praise and blame and um, beautiful and terrible and all of that, every situation in our, our life becomes an invitation to see something differently to know in inner freedom for ourselves through the material in our daily life. So we're here, there's a certain degree of steadiness and collectedness that has inevitably occurred. And then we, we move with a certain kind of interest, interest in learning, you know? This world, this life, is a field of learning. And as practitioners, if we can really get behind this, that this life, this world, our daily life, is a field of learning, then everything we touch can be transmuted into more and more love and more and more freedom. It's just we forget all the time. That's why we need each other. That's why we need Dharma friends and Dharma brothers and sisters and and, um, community. is because we forget a lot of the time. But any moment that we remember is a moment in which our life becomes our practice. You could say this word practice, we use it all the time. What is practice? And the way I want to define it in this moment is simply the willingness to be present. The willingness to be present. I was talking the other morning about how we generally live with ourselves on a part-time basis. And on a retreat, this is one of the interesting things about a retreat, we are certainly asked to live with ourselves full-time. And then we wonder why retreats are sometimes challenging. You know, because it's not so easy to, to live with oneself full-time. It can be easier to live with someone else full-time than it is with oneself. Um, but can we, can we be willing to be present within our lives with a loving care, a loving attentiveness? That's what I'm going to define practice as in the moment, this interest in learning. And then through the day, when we hit different situations, we can ask the question, how can I hold this? How can I relate to this differently? And perhaps we can, at times at least, remember that if we resist what is happening, the outcome of that is going to be more resistance. And we're going to find ourselves more knotted up, more tangled up. We can be aware that when we're grasping and we're clinging, that 
what we're grasping to and clinging onto is already slipping out of our grasp. And so we can turn to love in those moments instead. We can turn to love and affection and compassion in those moments instead. When we find ourselves caught in the sense of self, identifying with what's happening as being that which we can claim or possess or hold on to or, or be, you know, we can remember, at times at least, that we are nature. We are all aspects of nature and that we have to hand it all over back to nature. And so these are actual ways that we can practice through the day. We talk at a certain point on most retreats, and we certainly did on this retreat, about what are called the nivaranas or the, um, the hindrances. And it, the hindrance, I really don't like the, the word because it's a, it's, it's, it's a noun. It's such a noun, and it feels like a noun. But, but really, it's that which hinders through covering up the natural radiance of the heart. So the hindrances, or, or what are called the coverings, the nivaranas of, of desire and of aversion, of restlessness, of um, dullness, and of doubt. And sometimes, and this can be so, even for those of you in this room who have practiced for a very long time and have done tons of retreats over the decades, you can think that it's only important to... Um, to understand and release oneself from that which hinders clear seeing when you're on retreat. That that's the only time that it's important to do this. But actually, I want to encourage you as you go forth out of this environment into your daily life to practice with these obscurations as seriously, not in a heavy kind of way, you know, not ponderous way, but as seriously. This practice is serious but not grim. I think that's a good way to look at it. You know, so so seriously because our freedom is a serious matter. How we are in this world is a serious matter. And so to take up the practice of of looking at those times in any given day when we're wanting and we don't think we already have what we need. And in our usual daily lives, there's so much to want. And on a retreat, so much is taken away from us that you know, our wants could, can get somewhat exaggerated and really focused about one thing. I remember on a retreat for me um, many years ago, I, I really loved a particular bowl. We didn't have this thing where all the bowls were the same. We had the quirkiest bowls in the whole entire world. And um, a whole set of extremely eccentric um, mugs as well. So I wasn't the only one. We all had our favorite um, bowls and our mugs. And you know, we tried to share and recognize who really loved the particular mug and tried to give them. There's a lot going on, as you can imagine. But I, I still remember this one particular bowl that was perfect. It was just, it was simple. You know, it was a mug's bowl. It was a big Kuni's bowl, but it was perfect for, for my needs. And, and so I would look for it in particular. <laughs> so 
things that we wouldn't usually be so interested in outside of, of retreat life we get, we get interested in here. But outside of retreat life, when we have the capacity to um, want and want and want and want, so one of us was talking, I think it was Tim, I can't remember, one of us was talking about the catalogs that, that come in the mail and um, that kind of rev up a kind of wanting or you know, shopping over the internet or, or Amazon or all these different ways of, of wanting that we have available to us these days. But to see if we can be aware of wanting instead of always trying to find lasting satisfaction in that which is impermanent. You know? Instead of always thinking that the next thing we get is going to do it. So taking it on in an experimental way, not I should not have, I should not want, this is a life of deprivation, but to experiment and to be aware to be aware of times during the day of aversion, of not wanting, the effort to get rid of, 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 um, of resistance. And seeing if it's possible at times to sit with that resistance or stand with that resistance or lie down with that resistance or, or, or um, walk through that resistance instead of acting on it. But seeing if we could take it up and be aware of it aware of restlessness, of agitation. You know, we come usually on retreat, we have at least pockets or moments of real calm and real collectedness, if not deep calm and collectedness. But we go home and it's sometimes hard to even pull off a daily sit because we feel so restless. And yet, if we can sit anyway, and if we can be aware of the restlessness, it's, it's great. It's just great. The dullness, you know, the dullness that we can go through the day with. I'm not talking about sleepiness because um, oftentimes, you know, learning how much sleep we need, how little or how much is part of our life. We need to, we need to educate ourselves. So oftentimes people come to retreats and they're exhausted and um, they just have to sleep for the first couple of days. Sometimes that's inevitable. There's real demands on one's life. Other times there's ways that you could could look to see, does that need to be? You know, do I need more sleep? Do I need less sleep? To really look at this whole room of sleep. But the dullness is something different. And kind of just a, a dullness or lethargy that can be there. And I know for myself, sitting is truly remarkable in terms of any degree of of dullness. It just wakes the mind up. So I I offer that to you. And um, and doubt, uncertainty. We we practice with our doubt. We try to doubt our doubts until there is unshakable trust and faith in ourselves, in this practice, in these teachings of liberation. There's this beautiful, beautiful word, sadha, which means trust or faith, or to hand one's heart over to. So handing our hearts over to that which matters, to the dharma, to the truth of things, to liberation, to the immediacy of liberation. Not 20 years from now, not after we've sat a million retreats, but now, always right now. Okay, so... Yeah.
So that peace that Narayan just ended with, that immediacy of liberation, has always been a guiding principle in my own practice. If you hold that, then daily life becomes very alive as a practice. It's not something that I have to wait till I can go on a retreat, wait till these conditions are right. But the actual life to life, the rub, the difficulty that's right in front of me, that has the potential for liberation. In fact, daily life allows a much deeper integration than we may have on retreat. Because everything is, you may not feel this way, but perfect on the retreat. <laughs> you know, you don't have your job, you don't have your spouse, your girlfriend, your boyfriend, your kids, your dog. You just have to, you know, do your yogi job and eat and practice, <laughs> right? So unless your conditions of your life are like that, you know. But that rub is actually, instead of a barrier, is actually a gift. And so I like to talk about what I I call the three P's, like the three P's in a pod, of how to take this practice into our lives. It's often a question of how do we have that engagement, that that sense of of intentionality, and also just how do we actually do a practice in our busy life? You know, I have a job, I have a teenage daughter, you know, my wife, and so I have a very busy life, and how do I engage with life? and still have a very rich practice. So the first P is that of purpose. Often people say, you know, I have trouble sitting every day. And I often ask, well, why do you practice? And they say, well, I don't know. And if there's that vagueness, it's gonna be hard to have the energy to practice when you're tired, when you're overworked. But the more clear that that reason for practicing, the purpose of practicing, is in your heart, the easier it is to find the motivation to practice. And these seven days we've spent together, you've all had a deeper understanding of yourself, deeper insights, deeper compassion, and perhaps something has really resonated. And as Narayan talked about learning how to care and to not care, or perhaps the deep um, heartfelt desire to forgive yourself or others that Greg talked about the other night. Whatever it might be, it's like a little flame, a little fire that you've developed. Giving it oxygen, giving it fuel so it grows and becomes more and more strong. This becomes such an important reason for why do you practice? To have a lot of clarity with that. And then the motivation naturally takes care of itself. Now within that purpose, when that becomes more and more a clear seeing for yourself, the next P comes in. Actually, it comes in before the clarity is there too. And that is of pausing, of pausing. In a, Narayan and I have been teaching down at Cloud Mountain in Washington State, and the retreat center is a little more compact. And so we have this really beautiful practice. When you hear the bell, like the bell to come back to the walking, we ask the yogis to stop what they're doing, to literally physically pause, whether they're doing walking meditation or going to the bathroom or doing anything, they would pause. And that at the end of the retreat, there's this way that they've learned that and they've start to internalize that pause, right? And that is, it's a very important teaching 
Because in that pause, we have this potential to shift from reactivity to responsiveness. And in that pause, we can start to bring in the purpose for practice, really the purpose for life. It gives a little gap for that to fill in. And then there's a clarity of how do I act? How do I communicate? How do I do this next thing? Viktor Frankl is attributed to saying, between stimulus and response, there is a space. In that space is our power to choose our response. In our response lies our growth and our freedom. So that pause. So on retreat, we have the luxury as I've told you know, many people in, in interviews, to literally stop when you find that impulse to go into your, your reactivity, into your habit pattern, to literally pause as soon as you feel that, physically pause and then attend to the body. By doing that, you start to see the connections, you see the physical manifestation of that impulse to control, the impulse toward wanting, toward aversion. Right. In daily life, you'd be a little odd if you <laughs> stop and pause for a few minutes while your boss asks you some question. <laughs> so the pause can actually be very short. <laughs> it can be you know, as short as, as a breath, as just a touch point, feeling your feet touching the ground, feeling the sense of your, your hara, your center of, of, of your body. So there's this place of ground, connecting in with the heart. It's a beautiful pause to do as you're speaking, to touch into your heart, to make sure you're speaking from a kind heart. And if the heart is contracted, to pause a little bit more <laughs> and see if you can find, maybe I need to have this conversation a different time. So this sense of pause, and you've really cultivated that on this retreat. So as you go back into life, you can have just this little thoughtful pause as you interact with your family, with your friends, with, your, with everyone that you meet. That's that sense of pause. Okay, the trick is in that pause, you feel the body and you're willing to set aside the reactivity for a moment at least. Now in that pause, then there's a clarity that arises this story, the autobiography in five short chapters speaks to the power of this pause and how it starts to interrupt our normal, unskillful way of being in the world. Chapter one, I walk down the street. There's a deep hole in the sidewalk. I fall in. I am lost. I'm helpless. It isn't my fault. It takes me forever to find a way out. Chapter two, I walk down the same street. There's a deep hole in the sidewalk. I pretend I don't see it. I fall in again. I can't believe I am in the same place, but it isn't my fault. It still takes a long time to get out. Does this chapter two sound familiar? (laughs) Chapter three, I walk down the same street. There's a deep hole in the sidewalk. I see it is there. I still fall in. It's a habit but I know where I am. My eyes are open. I know where I am. It is my fault. I get out immediately. This is the transformation of that pause of taking ownership of your own experience. Oh, I'm feeling this contraction. I'm feeling this fear instead of projecting outward on 
life. And then the final, the fourth chapter, I walk down the same street. There's a deep hole in the sidewalk. I walk around it. Chapter five, I walk down another street. (laughs) So as you practice, you should start to see yourself walking down different streets, right? If there's the same street that you're walking down, you know, look at how much your eyes are open to that experience. How much you're able to pause to shift from the stimulus into the, so there's a pause from the stimulus from the reactivity, pause to allow this responsiveness to start to arise. And the final P, so we've got purpose, we've got um, pause, and then the final one is, is practice. So I'm going to define that a little differently in this moment. And that's simply kind of the rolling up your sleeves and actually getting to it. Right? Narayan had a beautiful definition. And we can also use that same word to describe sitting every day. I mean, literally sitting down on the cushion, on the chair, and attending to yourself. I was on a retreat with Ajahn Tichito a few, like a month or so ago, and he said, you know, you, you wouldn't leave the house before you wash your hair and brush your teeth. Why not wash internally too? Why not take care of the internal environment as much as you do the external? You know, so that the daily regular practice is so essential to start to have this, this baseline of steadiness. Because life is so, so many distractions. The current is really going against the Dharma practitioner. So we have to have this cultivation. We have to take time to cultivate. And we also have to take time to practice our understanding. We have to practice our insights. So if you just take what you happen on this retreat and it just stays on the retreat, it's a very limited value. But if there's a a seeing of yourself differently, when you see yourself differently, and you come into life and you come right against that, that impulse is like a fork in the road. I can go toward my neuroses, my habits, towards suffering, or I could go toward the heart, toward liberation. And that pause and the sustained practice lets you start to see that fork. Sometimes you may have gone down a few miles down the, went the suffering road. As you recognize it, then there's another fork. So the sense of practicing your insights, really bringing it into a really concrete manifestation. Because if we keep acting and speaking and thinking the same way, we keep in deepening that groove. But if we're willing to start to move toward our liberation, then that loosens that and strengthens that other path. But a caveat is you have to be willing to go to the unknown. You have to be going out beyond your comfort zone, the comfort zone of perhaps of a lot of suffering, a lot of pain, but it's still familiar. You know your way around that house. So there has to be a willingness to let that house start to dissolve. So there's a different way of being in the world, going from the known to the unknown. Not in a sense of confusion, but a place of wonder, and a place of deep peace. All right, thank you.
my favorite mug in those old days um, had Gumby and Pokey on it. Maybe some of you younger folks don't know who Gumby and Pokey, <laughs> they were claymation characters in a cartoon. It had Gumby and Pokey, and Gumby had his arm around Pokey's neck, and it said, friends forever. <laughs> and uh, I just loved that mug. <laughs> it was so sad to me when they got this uh, all the same thing. <laughs> Somebody got that Gumby and Pokey mug. And, and I tried to find one. My partner actually, has, I have a small collection of Gumbies and Pokies now. <laughs> she tried to find me a mug and, and couldn't, so. Um. <laughs> anyway. <laughs> when Narayan was talking about being sleepy, it reminded me of a story from Gil Fransdahl, who's a teacher in California, and he said that his, one of his teachers, who I think he was a, a Zen master from Korea, but he he actually fell asleep while giving a Dharma talk. <laughs> and, um, and Gil said he, he aspired to be that relaxed. <laughs> so Narayan didn't quite reach that level, but you know, she was in the terrain there. <laughs> so I'm gonna offer some reflections, maybe a bit more on kind of a broader attitude broader attitudes that we might have in terms of how we hold what we see as this path, as um, you know, this kind of journey we might see ourselves on or kind of a broader view of what we see as practice. Because we, we can look at the spiritual life or, or the unfolding or, or this process in a lot of different ways. We could see it as you know, a series of insights progress of insights leading to something, uh, stages of enlightenment, that path might have some meaning for us or uh, revealing and, and uh, connecting with our Buddha nature, that which we've talked about that already knows is already free, but gets covered over. Um, different ways that we might hold this and, and at different times, different things might resonate with us. <clears throat> But there's one kind of model or um, think of a, a way to, to think about what we're doing in this, the development of this path that I think is always useful, always powerful. And that is in terms of what are called the, the ten paramis in this tradition. And these are um, ten um, wholesome, beautiful qualities, and I'll list them in just a moment that it is said that the Buddha developed these over countless lifetimes. And there are uh, a bunch of stories um, that are, are kind of, they have the flavor of teaching fables where the Buddha to be, the Bodhisattva or Bodhisattva in, in Sanskrit, takes birth in different situations, often as an animal, and is perfecting one or another of these qualities in these stories. And so the, the 10, in this tradition, that's listed as 10. Uh, there are different lists. And uh, they are, I'll say the Pali and then the English. So dana, generosity, which we spoke about a bit this afternoon. Sila, which is ethical conduct, the, the way that we live our lives uh, with care and uh, you know, real attention. Uh, nekama, renunciation, we've spoken quite a bit about that and the role of that in our practice. 
panya, uh, which is insight or wisdom, uh, virya, energy, effort, perseverance, courage, sometimes, kanti is patience, satcha, truthfulness, aditana, determination, resolve, metta, kindness, and upekka, equanimity. So I think we've really touched on these, all of these in different ways um, over the, in what we've spoken about. And we can see these. So it's said that in the enlightened mind, in the mind of the Buddha, the fully awakened being, these are all brought to a, a place of uh, f- completion, of perfection. And we can see them as a description of the path. We work on these different things at different times. Different ones are in the forefront of our experiences as, as what's happening. And, and we can also see it as a description of the culmination of the path. Um, you know, we could say they're the expression in the world of the mind that's no longer uh, under the sway of the energies of, of craving, grasping, greed, of resistance, hatred, and of delusion, confusion. And when those fall away, then these, these things uh, come to the fore. And I think this way of looking is especially common in, certainly in a lot of the Asian countries where I've spent time. And I think it's partly because they tend to take a very long view. And this, this, uh, they see this, the story of the Jataka stories in a very literal and real way. And, and uh, there are, often my teachers there would talk about someone who's, whose parami is, is developing or maybe very ripe. And it's seen that we're not all the same in this regard. And um, you know, they see this, this long-term view of uh, the practice developing over lifetimes. And, and it's an interesting idea. I mean, what if this entire lifetime for you is about developing patience? Is that okay? <laughs> I mean, we develop patience by getting to know impatience. That's not so much fun. What if it's just about perseverance? The willingness to begin again. How many times have you begun again this week. At least a few. It's probably in the thousands by now. Don't you think? How many times in a day, in a single meditation period, do we come back and start again? It's amazing. So if we hold this way of looking at the path, then it has this, uh, it, it expands so greatly expands the breadth of what we think of as practice. It unhooks us from this tendency to think that it's um, when we're sitting quietly with our eyes closed. So it, it, it has this immediate effect of um, turning the, our life into our practice. Because everything, if we look at it in that way, we're always working on one of these things in a way, whether we're thinking of it intentionally or not. We're encountering these things. Uh, they, they, come to, uh, into, they come to bear in the different situations that we come to in our lives. And it, so it cuts through that um, tendency to be cut it, always assessing and judging our practice and looking for signs of progress, you know. And here we are on this retreat, you know, we're looking around and it's clear that, that we're not getting it, but 
other people are clearly are getting it, you know, whatever it is. You know, what, what if they get it all? And there's nothing, there's none of it left for me. <laughs> you know, and these projections on other people and this comparing. And, but, but if we hold this view of the paramis, then, you know, throughout our life, there's this constant, if we look at it in this way, we're constantly, one or, or more of these is, is what's happening in the moment. We're called upon to, uh, to be very patient at times, where truthfulness is really the thing that's important. And we can look at it this way. Our tendency is to assess our our progress and to judge ourselves. We we judge ourselves in terms of judgments we make about our experience. As though it shouldn't be certain ways, right? If we were any good as a human, as a meditator, certain experiences just wouldn't happen. As though we had it were in control of that. You know, we come to a retreat like this and we just, you know, we worked hard to get here and we just, we just sit, want to have a little calm and we sit down and there's this uncomfortable body and this wild, crazy mind that won't do what we want. You know, it's not that you got issued a particularly bad body and mind when you walked in the door. It's the same one you had before you came here. <laughs> but, you know, it's like, wow, I didn't know it was that bad. You know? <laughs> I mean, is there anyone here who would voluntarily agree if I had a contraption where I could broadcast the contents of your mind (laughs) over the loudspeaker here? Is there anyone who would volunteer to play that? I mean, it would be... Embarrassing would be the best (laughs) part of that experience, you know? We We wouldn't go for that. You know, so much comes up and so much of it isn't easy to be with. And, but we have to look at everything sooner or later. There's a story of uh, uh, Tibetan teacher Chogyam Trungpa Rinpoche. Um, and he was giving, it was an evening event. He was going to give a talk. It was a big thing. And he was a very famous teacher. It was in, I think it was in California somewhere. And it was a big hall and a lot of people had paid a lot of money to, to come and and he was late, because that was his tendency, was to be late to these things. And he, finally he shows up and he says this, if you want your money back, it's all right. Just go to the door and ask for it back. It's, it's really fine. In fact, if you haven't started the spiritual path, it's best not to begin. <laughs> it's difficult. It's terrible. And you have to face all kinds of things you won't like. As far as the ego is concerned, it's just one insult after another. <laughs> I mean, you know, sometimes that's what it's like to be with our mind over the course of a period of meditation. So it takes so much, so many of these, it takes so much patience and kindness, perseverance. And these are things that we're constantly developing through our life. If, and if we look at our practice and our path in this way, then there's nothing that falls outside of the scope of our practice. 
It's there all the time. And so this really makes our life, our practice. It's, it's not even make it just, we see that's, that's just the truth of things. You know, we see, we've seen over this week that undoing these um, deeply conditioned habits of mind, it's kind of a big project. This one retreat probably didn't quite finish the job. Maybe it's getting pretty close, but you know we have to take this long view. <laughs> you know, it, it's, it takes this incredible dedication. I remember on my very first—I think it was my first really long retreat. This three-month retreat I mentioned that I sat within a few months of ever starting to meditate, and I remember saying to one of my teachers at that time these words, I'm in this for the long haul. I voiced that. That was very clear to me that I was going to be in this for the long haul. I didn't know what that meant or what it would look like, but this sense that I'm going to, I'm going to stick to this. And that's what has made the difference. You know, I think it was one of my colleagues was talking about how this idea that we of you know, seeing ourselves as, as a remedial yogi. Well, I've always seen myself as a remedial yogi, you know. But I am a role model for doggedness and perseverance. <laughs> I sit before you tonight as a role model for sticking to it, keeping at it through thick and thin. And that's what really makes the difference. The only way we're going to uh, re- reorient our perspective and unlearn or unhook ourselves from these deeply conditioned habits is to uh, stick with it. That's what's going to really matter in the long run. So I uh, offer this uh, short reflection here along with uh, those of my, my colleagues. And uh, is there anything either of you want to add here to um, wind things up or shall I do that? Okay. Let's sit quietly for a moment and then I'll ring the bell. Okay. It's eight oh one. I'm so (laughs) I'm so proud of myself.
So we wanted to um, speak like this tonight, knowing that you're aware that you're going home tomorrow, that that's what's happening in your mind anyway, because it's so natural for that to be so. But we also want you now to just go right back into the life of the retreat, the appreciation of the forms, the simplicity, the love of the silence, the ordinariness of things. So right now, uh, a walking, just a walking. You don't have to worry about tomorrow right now, just a walking. And then um, coming together for our last sitting of the evening, which includes, of course, the chanting. And um, it's been really, really full. Many of you have been coming to the last sitting, but if for whatever the reason you haven't come all week, tonight's the night. (laughs) So please, um, please come. And we'll chant together and then and then call it a night. Okay. Walking meditation is happening. <laughs> 